entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Uh, hey, <laughs> hey guys, what what an episode tonight! I am I am mentally drained, and uh, we we record these at the very end of the episode. Uh, so just to bring the audience up to speed, this is Matt Watto. We just we just recorded a long episode, which is fantastic that you're about to hear. And with me are multiple co-hosts, Paul and Stuart. You guys both here? I'm still here. Yeah, for the time being, until I bury myself in a shame hole. <laughs> I think I already have this time. You guys did great. Yeah, and that's that, of course, is the great Hannah R. Abrams, who is our, our sort of moderator for this episode, who did a ton of great work putting this one together. Hi, Hannah, and thank you for joining us on air. Absolutely. I am so excited for the listeners to hear this episode because it's going to help them build a basic clinical reasoning terminology. It's going to help them learn how to make diagnostic schema so that they can do case-based diagnostic practice. And it's going to be a fun way for them to actually practice along with us, uh, learning how to do some clinical diagnostic reasoning. So I hope everyone enjoys the episode. Yeah, and spoiler alert, uh, some people on the show did better than others in their diagnostic <laughs> reasoning. <laughs> um, also, if you're one of my residents or medical students, please turn off now. I'll, I'll let you know how it worked out. Paul, um, you, maybe I know most people know what we do on the show, but why don't you tell them just because I like to hear you tell people what we do on the show. Sure, Matt. Happy to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. At the outset, we also talk to our experts just to get to know them a little bit better about what makes them them and what they do to relax and what they do outside of medicine. So uh, if there is no love in your heart, feel free to skip past that part into the meat of the show. Just refer to the, the timestamps in the show notes. And, uh, you know, not to sound pompous, I would I would like to just point out to other internal medicine podcasts, they can also call themselves the internal medicine podcast. We're more doing it in the spirit of college football, where people say the Ohio State University, et cetera. Um, I don't know why I said Ohio State. My mom would kill me if I said that. I should say the <laughs> Go Bucks, the Penn State University. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyway, our guest on this episode is Dr. Reza Manesh. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He is the assistant program director for clinical reasoning of the Osler Medical Training Program. As a clinician educator, he is passionate about patient care and the teaching of both graduate and undergraduate medical trainees. His academic interests include the study and teaching of clinical reasoning and diagnostic expertise. Dr. Manesh earned his MD from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He completed his residency at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. And as you are about to see, he is enthusiastic, an absolute joy, and uh, quite good at diagnostic reasoning, um, especially yes. when contrasted to yours truly and <laughs> some of the other people on this call. Hmm. You know, Matt, I I was gonna make a silly pun about cognitive autopsies, but then Reza changed my mind. <laughs> Is that a pun? <laughs> 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 
Reza, can you give the audience a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure thing. Uh, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me on the show, and congratulations to all your success with all these instructive sessions. I'm a 33-year-old man who enjoys lifting heavy weights, working a sweat on an elliptical, university campuses, especially libraries, and eating at Chipotle. <laughs> Is Chipotle your life? <laughs> uh, people who know me know that I eat at Chipotle probably four times a week. Well, uh, Reza, I just want to, I, I heard a cautionary tale about Chipotle and it has nothing to do with hygiene or like, you know, sanitation. <laughs> so that if that's where your mind was going, this was about a, a, a student at a large university who was only eating Chipotle, but never got the vegetables. And they actually developed like scurvy or one, like some, some like disease of like <laughs> malnutrition. <laughs> Cause that has to be urban legend. I heard that same story about a taco bell. Like everyone has a friend, Todd, who developed scurvy because of eating Mexican. That'd make a great human diagnosis project case. <laughs> that would be the final clue. The The final clue was the, the student admits that they were only eating at Chipotle and never got vegetables and then everyone would get it. <laughs> it would just it be, be the Chipotle taco. order. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Paul, Stewart, any, any questions? Paul. Sure. Yeah. It looks like it's all teed up. I'm going to ask, what, tell me a book that every physician should read. So the book I'm going to recommend is for physicians and non-physicians, and that's the Book of Joy by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So Archbishop Desmond Tutu traveled to the Dalai Lama's home in Dharamshala, India, to celebrate his 80th birthday and to write a book dedicated to the following question. How do we find joy in the face of life's inevitable suffering? I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger, Paul. Okay. I was like, could you please tell me how to do that, please? <laughs> you know, I, I think the three themes I got from this book included the following. Reframing your circumstance in a positive light, being grateful to others, and being kind and generous to others. Like, I hope you will be to me when I try to solve some places tonight. <laughs> Hopefully it's mutual. <laughs> Notice the complete absence of assurances here. I'm not sure if you picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're just waiting to see how nice we are to each other first. Um, what's your favorite failure? And what exactly did you learn from it? Okay, so my, my favorite failure occurred in college. I was a neuroscience major. And after my freshman year, I worked in Dr. Edward Stryker's lab. He was probably the most influential person in my academic career. And his lab studied body fluid homeostasis and the mechanisms of thirst and vasopressin secretion. So why do we get thirsty? And when we start drinking water, how do we know we have to stop drinking? By the way, I, I thought uh, this research question was so interesting that when I attended parties in college, I would bring this up with people I was trying to interact with. Not many <laughs> people found it as interesting as I did. Um, but for, for several years, it's been known there's cerebral osmoreceptors, which monitor the osmolality of the systemic circulation. And when that osmolality is elevated, it signals you to experience thirst, and then you start drinking water. Um, and then once the osmolality is normalized, you lose that signal for thirst. We had hypothesized that there's receptors right outside the stomach, known as the visceral osmoreceptors, which can anticipate what's going to enter the systemic circulation. And before any changes in the cir systemic circulation, it would signal thirst and vasopressin secretion. So they had done 
uh, a pilot study, which they showed rats eating 8% salt diet would drink enough water to create an isotonic solution uh, before the systemic circulation actually saw the salt load. So the experiment was easy. Reza, come in the lab and replicate this study and get a publication. So probably for six months, I was unable oh, no. to replicate the study. And of course, they blame the, the sophomore. <laughs> uh, who else is there to blame? And then one day, there was powdered chow instead of the, the solid pellets. And I decided to just use the powder to be resourceful. And when I used the powder, the rats drank the exact amount you would expect to make the solution isotonic. And what we learned was when they eat the solid pellets, they form chyme, and the chyme, like a mashed potato substance, conceals the salt from the visceral osmoreceptors, so they never see it to stimulate thirst until the salt hits the systemic circulation. But in the powder form, imagine Cheerios. This salt would come and activate the, the visceral osmoreceptors. So it was very challenging to uh, grind up the, the pellets <laughs> into a powder. So my lab colleague, Jen Vaughn, uh, she recommended we we put the pellets in a trash bag and run them over with my 2002 Jetta. <laughs> so we went, went to North Dithridge on the University of Pittsburgh campus and we ran over these pellets. And I, I swear, I'm not sure what the people walking in the streets were thinking of us. However, uh, it did work. Uh, but the Jetta never made it into the method section of the manuscript. <laughs> Paul? Hey, Paul, I think we're hosed on this episode, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I missed the pun, but that's, uh, I'm not good at puns. (laughs) There was no pun. That was just truth. Just plain old truth. Okay. Hannah, did you want to ask a question? Sure. So what's the best advice that you've ever received as a learner? So this would be from Jeff Weiss, who's the program director at Tulane Internal Medicine Residency Program. And by the way, every time I hear him speak at a conference, I start tearing up. And I'm not sure why I'm tearing up, but he really strikes that emotional chord. He is a very talented lecturer, but he used the following quote from the early 20th century, which is applicable to every teacher, medical or non-medical. They, the students, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This this gentleman has been oft recommended for the podcast, and uh, maybe with your connection, we might be able to get him on in a, on a future episode. I'm not sure I want to. Tears come up a lot when his name is mentioned. I don't. It's <laughs> because of the visceral osmoreceptors of knowledge. It's, you just get prepared. It'll be it'll be a very special episode when all when Paul Stewart and I each cry on air. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we might try tonight for other reasons. <laughs> All right, <laughs> perhaps perhaps we should move on to the uh, to the episode here because I I imagine this is uh, yeah we should just get into it, guys. All right, let's do it. Okay, so first I want to explain what Human Diagnosis Project or Human DX is. So. The project is a worldwide effort that's been created with and led by the global medical community to build an open intelligence system that maps the steps to helping any patient. So that was a lot of words. But what their real idea is, is that they combine the intelligence of doctors around the world with machine learning through this case solving, and thus they enable more accurate, more affordable, and more accessible care for all. So that's an awesome slogan. Reza, can you tell us 
what you do in all of that and what the Global Morning Report is. Absolutely. Um, so Morning Report is one of the reasons I chose to pursue general medicine. I mean, what can be better than sitting in a room with your colleagues, coffee, and expert clinicians and thinking about an interesting case? Uh, Dr. Shantanu Nandi, director of the nonprofit arm, had the vision for Global Morning Report, where he thought, why don't we highlight one case each day as our Global Morning Report for users to attempt to solve? And my role with Global Morning Report is I serve as the supervising editor for the adult medicine section. I do receive an honorarium for my role with the project, but essentially myself and a team of unbelievable co-editors um, choose a case from one of the users. We add teaching points and we select it as the Global Morning Report. And then we send it to the registered users to try to have them solve it and challenge their mind. I think this is probably a good time to mention that uh, the Core I Am podcast, um, they they have like a whole bunch of different types of episodes they do, kind of like we do. And John Huang is one of, like, he does a lot of your Global Morning Report cases, and they recently did a Hoofbeats episode uh, featuring a Human DX case. And uh, so we just wanted to shout out to them. We know, uh, they, they have a great podcast as well. Thank you so much, Matt. Wong is amazing. He probably creates some of the best cases that I, I've attempted to solve. Maybe we'll find out later this episode. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we get there, can you tell us how the actual Global Morning Report format works? Yes. So when you attempt to solve a case using Global Morning Report, you get data in piecemeal fashion. So you get some information and then you have to create a differential diagnosis then you reveal more information and you update your differential diagnosis, essentially simulating the iterative hypothesis testing. And at the end of the, the case, you submit your final differential diagnosis and your score based on accuracy through two measurements. One, did you get the correct diagnosis or not? And then two, how prioritized did you have the right diagnosis? And the second component of the scoring system is how quickly did you arrive at the diagnosis? The more efficient you arrive at the diagnosis, the more points you get. All right. So if our listeners have a case that they think would be a good global morning report, can they submit it to Human DX? This is such a leading question. I love it. <laughs> no, no, they, no, they cannot, actually. <laughs> I'm just joking. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was actually told Reza that you can if your case if your cases are selected you can actually put this on your CV. There's a way to do that as well. Absolutely. Um you you can cite it on your CV as an open access publication and to submit a case just send it to gmr-admin@humandx.org and we would love to receive cases and highlight them in our global morning report series. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention, Reza, that uh, you can also put this show on your CV as an open access publication. <laughs> and uh, I will send you a link once this comes out. <laughs> awesome. Um, so thank you for that. I am sure that hopefully you'll be inundated with some curbsiders, listeners' cases. Uh, but tonight we have cases that have already been kind of selected to solve and our listeners can solve them along the way with us. So first I'm going to explain the format for a little bit. Listeners, you can either go to the Curbsider show notes uh, and click the link in the show notes and solve them with us on the Human DX website, 
Or if you're driving your car, please do not open the app. Um, <laughs> instead, um, just go ahead and pause after we say kind of each bit of information. You can pause, um, think it through yourself, and when you're ready to go, hit restart and listen to what we have to say. So the ov overall way it's going to work is that I'm going to present a case as it appears on HumanDX um, in a kind of stump the professor, stump the attendings format to Reza or the Curbsiders team. And then Reza or the Curbsiders team are going to alternate solving the cases in real time without any prior knowledge of its content. So with each new diagnostic finding, as you do on the HumanDX website, we're going to kind of refigure what our differential is and what we think is going on. At the end of each case, we'll do a couple teaching points that you get with the global morning report cases, and we're going to do a cognitive autopsy of our own diagnostic reasoning process. So I think we we've got to ask uh, Stuart. Do you know what a cognitive aut autopsy is? Uh, I thought about this a little bit, and I, <laughs> you know, I was going to make a joke about it. Um, it, you know, it's really funny because autopsy comes from the Greek words autos and optos, which literally means seeing oneself. And the only thing I thought was weird about this is that we call an it's it's an autopsy, postmortem autopsy, but you're not actually seeing yourself, right? So I think a cognitive autopsy is probably more in line with what an autopsy actually is instead of an, a postmortem autopsy. Just something to think about. Wow, that was not what I was autopsy. expecting when I put in the script. <laughs> like, Stuart, can you come up with a joke for this transition? <laughs> All right. Well, that is a great transition. Um, <laughs> Reza, can you define a couple terms for us about clinical reasoning before we get started? Definitely. So first off, one of these terms that's come up a lot is problem representation. So a lot of the terms I'm going to define, you can actually access on clinicalreasoning.org. The co-editors for that website include Juan Lessing and Gabby Berger. Juan is from University of Colorado and Gabby is from University of Washington. So the problem representation is basically highlighting the defining features of a case. This includes the epidemiology, the duration of symptoms, and the clinical syndrome. Gupreet Dhaliwal, who's my mentor, would say, this is what you enter into the Google Chrome search engine. And we all do it, <laughs> you know, when we're trying to solve cases. Awesome. So the next question is, what's an illness script? The illness script is basically your mental file for a disease process. And this might include the pathophysiology, the clinical syndrome, diagnosis, treatment, and epidemiology. So essentially, when you create your problem representation, you're going to a library of files in your mind trying to find the illness script that matches the problem representation. Hmm. Reza, I like to think of the illness script as, as sort of like, you know how in residency people sometimes, uh, well, this is probably, if you weren't a millennial or if you're barely a millennial <laughs> like me, people would be like, yeah, like if you, when you see a disease, like write everything you know about it on a note card and like, you know, it's, it's sort of like the note card gets more and more full as you see more and more cases. And I, I sort of think of that's like my illness script. At least that's how I visualize it. Well said, Matt. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So speaking of things about scripts, can you tell us what actually is a cognitive autopsy? So, so it's not a postmortem, thankfully. <laughs> but it, it, the cognitive autopsy is probably one of my favorite terms. And I first heard Gupreet use it when he was solving an unknown. It's basically reflecting on your thought process and seeing mm. if you could have performed better or not. 
This is what they call, and really we learn the most when we make mistakes and reflecting on those mistakes to see what we could do differently if we're presented the same clinical scenario again. Uh, I'm sure we'll be performing the cognitive autopsy <laughs> in tonight's episode. We will learn uh, from the mistakes that we're about to make. All right. So next question, you know, I've been thinking a couple times about how I would define this term, and I, I think I keep getting it wrong. So can you tell me, what is iterative hypothesis testing? It's basically <laughs> coming up with a hypothesis, then testing it, and either accepting, rejecting, or modifying it, and repeating this cycle as more information comes in. And this is what human DX forces you to do. All right, our last term to, to define before we get into it, what's a diagnostic schema? This is probably my favorite clinical reasoning term because essentially it's a systematic way to tackle a clinical problem by having an organized approach. And for all the teachers that are listening, uh, we all know if you teach in the schema format, the learners are more likely to retain that information and I would argue also learn that information. <laughs> I would agree. All right. Thank you, Anna. Let's, <laughs> let's see if you can come up with a schema for our first case. All right. So let's get started. Uh, Reza, you're going to be solving our first case. And we have a specially written case that you have not seen. So thank you to the Human Diagnosis Project ex editors for sneaking us some cases behind your back. Uh, <laughs> listeners, if you want to play along, you can follow the link in the show notes. This is case number one, written by Dr. Zavin Sargasyan who is an inpatient clinician educator at Baylor College of Medicine and edited by Dr. Stephanie Sherman. All right, go ahead and click. So this is the case of a 44-year-old woman with recurrent episodes of dizziness and palpitations. A little bit more about her dizziness and palpitations. These episodes have been going on for one year, and they've been increasing in frequency now to the point of multiple times per day. When it happens, she gets this malaise and sweating, sometimes confusion and loss of consciousness, and she notices that they go away when she eats. You find out her medical history. She has history of anxiety and seizure disorder, but isn't currently on any medications. And she has a family history of a mother with diabetes and breast cancer, uh, but no heart problems, autoimmune disease, or endocrine disease in the family. So... What do you think about our 44-year-old woman with recurrent episodes of dizziness and palpitations? Yeah, so first of all, thank you, Zalvin, for creating this case. Um, so we have a, a middle-aged woman here with recurrent episodes of dizziness and palpitations. Um, when you have dizziness with palpitations, it makes you think that an arrhythmia may be causing lightheadedness. So this could be a tachyarrhythmia or a bradyarrhythmia. However, when we're given additional history that this is episodic since a year ago, and it's associated with diaphoresis, it makes you think about hypoglycemia or other endocrinopathies like thyrotoxicosis or hyperthyroidism. Now, interestingly, the alleviation with eating prompts the consideration of Whipple's triad. Essentially, someone is symptomatic with underlying hypoglycemia you give them glucose and it resolves their symptoms. Whipples was a famous guy. If you think about it, the other day I was in California and even saw a sign of Whipples Road. I was like, is Whipple also involved in construction or what? <laughs> <laughs> this guy must have been really busy. Um, but essentially when I get a history like this, I worry about an arrhythmia, 
Uh, the episodic nature makes me think more of hypoglycemia, especially the fact that it improves with eating food. But you also have to think about um, thyroid toxicosis. Additionally, illicit substances that, that a patient may use episodically can, can lead to these symptoms. So can you whipple us up kind of an initial differential diagnosis? <laughs> I will whipple you up an initial differential diagnosis. So I, I would put in there um, hypoglycemia, hyperthyroidism, illicit substance abuse, and some form of arrhythmia. So you talk to her a little bit more and you find out that she was hospitalized for similar symptoms one year ago and was told at the time that she had low blood sugars. Her symptoms improved slightly for a while, and then now they've been worsening again. Yeah, so this, um, I think it just increases the likelihood of hypoglycemia as being the cause of the patient's symptoms. So it's gonna be really important to know what was this patient's glucose when she was symptomatic, and did her symptoms completely resolve with the administration of glucose. But, but I think hypoglycemia is sort of prioritized in our differential diagnosis. We're gonna need more information. Um, in particular, what is her blood glucose when she presents to the hospital? What were her, what were her symptoms? And did it resolve with the administration of, of blood glucose? And you know, as we get more information, we can actually develop a schema for hypoglycemia. But before I share my schema for hypoglycemia, I wanna make sure that's what we're dealing with here. So I have a lot of information for you, and unfortunately, none of it is that. Uh, I do have her physical exam, though. Sure. So she has normal vital signs. Her BMI is 32. She appears healthy and comfortable with a normal heart exam, mental status exam, and neurologic exam. So, so that's important because, remember, we were um, worried about uh, an arrhythmia, and here we're told the heart exam is normal. Uh, the BMI being 32 is important as well. It tells us that if we see a low blood glucose in one of the laboratory tests, it's not because the patient is cachectic or malnourished, because it seems like she um, is mildly obese uh, with this BMI. And currently she looks fine, which is consistent with her complaint that her symptoms are episodic as opposed to being constant. What we need to do is capture her vital signs and her blood sugar when she has one of these episodes. Mm -hmm. So overall, how does this change your differential, this part of the exam? Well, when you give me a normal uh, physical exam, Hannah, it doesn't change it too much. Because if we go back to the, the way we're framing the case or a problem representation, we're saying this is a middle-aged woman with episodic, episodic uh, episodes of lightheadedness, diaphoresis, and palpitations. And the fact that she's totally fine on the mm. physical exam doesn't really change much in terms of our DDX. All right. So the next detail that we get, we talk to her a little bit more. We find out that she works as a patient care assistant for a home health company. Okay. Th this might be helpful. And you know, you never want to lead with with a diagnosis that I'm, I'm about to mention, uh, but it should be mm -hmm. always included in the DDX. And that's, can the patient be surreptitiously using someone's insulin, causing them to become hypoglycemic? You never want to lead with this, but it's something that I keep in the back of my mind. The, the, remain, the remaining values, will, the remaining findings will be helpful in, in knowing how much emphasis to put on her you know, um, 
occupation as a patient care assistant. Mm-hmm. So you get back her diag- her basic labs. Um, so her serum glucose is 37 and concurrent insulin is 20 with a C-peptide of 4.4. So both of those concurrent values are high normal. And her beta-hydroxybutyrate is uh, 0.11, which is low normal. Her creatinine is 0.6 and her LFTs are within normal limits. And before we interpret these labs, um, I just want to share my approach to hypoglycemia and then we'll interpret these labs. With regard to my schema for hypoglycemia, my first branch point is it is it insulin dependent, insulin mediated, or non-insulin mediated? So we'll see in the hospital that patients with sepsis um, from any cause can become hypoglycemic. Patients with adrenal insufficiency can become hypoglycemic. Um, so and and patients with thyroid disorders. So those are my non-insulin causes of hypoglycemia. Then when I come to insulin, I ask the question, is this endogenous or exogenous? Exogenous is if someone is using insulin or if they're on like a sulfonylurea that stimulates the pancreas to create insulin. Um, Endogenous causes include insulinoma, uh, autoimmune um, hypoglycemia where you get antibodies to the insulin uh, receptor. and insulin growth factor hormone, which can be secreted in the setting of a perineoplastic phenomenon, for example, when someone has a small cell lung cancer. So here, what we're seeing is, um, we're seeing that glucose is 37. If someone's glucose is 37, their insulin should be low. So the fact that this patient's insulin is elevated, we know that this is insulin-mediated hypoglycemia. So the next question becomes, is this endogenous or exogenous? Well, if it's exogenous, usually the, well, the C-peptide won't be elevated. It's when you have endogenous insulin production where you get an elevation in the C-peptide because of the cleavage that occurs. So here we're, we're shown that the glucose is low, the insulin and C-peptide are inappropriately high, suggesting elevation in the endogenous insulin level. And we're shown that the beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is, you know, one of your number one ketones uh, that, that you create when you're in a state of starvation, is appropriately low because of the insulin levels being elevated. So where do we localize the lesion? I think there's a problem with endogenous insulin production. And I'm, I'm really happy that Zalvin included the LFTs and the creatinine because Two organs that are involved in gluconeogenesis include the liver and the kidney. So I've, I've had patients that I've taken care of with cirrhosis who are alcoholics and have renal insufficiency that had an A1C of 4.4. So their glucose was low because they had impaired gluconeogenesis. Both the kidney and the liver uh, impairment in their function is in your non-insulin arm of hypoglycemia. So. So I think when you see these lab values, you get worried for either uh, for potentially an insulinoma or a growth factor hormone or something that's um, causing this patient's hypoglycemia. Wow, that's an awesome schema. All right, so you kind of move forward with this thought in your mind, and you notice that while she's been inpatient, her glucose recurrently drops to below 50 until you start D10 at 100 cc's per hour. Yes, and I, I think the, we actually just had a patient on our service um, 
quick shout out to, to, my, to my residents at Cashlack. We just had a patient on our service who had hypoglycemia, and we actually had to transfer that patient to the MICU to um, actually assess for, um, for hypoglycemia and do the hypoglycemia protocol. Because what you do, and it sounds malignant, but you have to do this, is basically you starve the patient and you watch their glucose drop. And you watch it drop to the point that they become symptomatic. Because really you want to see, is the body not acting appropriately when they're hypoglycemic and symptomatic? And so in this case, when that glucose drops at 50 and the patient's symptomatic, you should send you know, the insulin, the C-peptide, and all those studies. But what this suggests is I think we need to evaluate for an insulinoma or, um, yeah, I, I think an insulinoma would be a good fit for, for, for this case. All right. Well, conveniently, you get a CT abdomen that shows a 1.4 centimeter round enhancing lesion in the pancreatic tail. So that's our final clue. Where would you want to put your money? <laughs> I'll put my money on insulinoma. <laughs> All right. You said Whipple's triad after the first clue, and I was like, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the patient was diagnosed with an insulinoma. Uh, EUS was done to rule out satellite lesions or local metastasis. Uh, she underwent a distal pancreatectomy, um, and the pathology confirmed a highly differentiated neuroendocrine tumor. There was no family history concerning for MEN. Uh, she had an un uneventful post-op course, and her hypoglycemic symptoms resolved. So... <laughs> Yeah, wow. we did it, guys. <laughs> Together, we cracked the case. Yeah. Good job. Reza, uh, I can tell you're good at this because as you were going through, I was like, oh, yeah, I could do this. Seems easy. I could do this. He's like, <laughs> but I think your thinking was so clearly that it was like very easy to follow on. So that's that's really awesome. Guys, may I suggest something? Can we just end the episode right here <laughs> and call it a victory for all of us? <laughs> <laughs> no man, so, I think I think there's uh when we crash and burn on the next case, I think the audience is really going to learn a lot from that too. <laughs> so let me ask just if you don't mind, the most impressive part for me was the uh the schema. So I'm wondering is that something that like how do you put those together? Do you like okay, I, this is my first hypoglycemia case, I will now think critically about how to think about hypoglycemia. How do you how do you build that? Thank you for asking that question. It's it's such a great one. The schema I you have to develop it really by blocking off a chunk of time where you really sit down and you think, how do you want to share the knowledge you have for hypoglycemia? And I will tell you, like the sources I use include NEJM, UpToDate, in particular, the clinical problem solving series is quite helpful because there you have the most experienced and elite clinicians solving cases and you get to adopt their schemas and pretend it was a schema that you created. <laughs> uh, but but I think with the schema, honestly, you need, like, I always tell the, the residents I work with at Cashlack that they have the knowledge. They just need to spend 30 minutes organizing that knowledge because when they organize it in such a format, it almost serves as a diagnostic checklist um, where mm -hmm. you make sure you don't forget a particular diagnosis and it's easier to recall. So this was not my first time thinking about hypoglycemia and it probably <laughs> took me 10, 10 efforts to come up with the schema. And you saw, even when I was sharing my schema, I forgot impaired gluconeogenesis until I saw the LFTs and the normal creatinine. So, so I think the schema takes effort, but it's effort that's worthwhile. And then 
practice as much as you can teaching your schemas and annoy people. Keep teaching them <laughs> until they tell you to stop teaching them. And then you'll you'll evolve your schema as, as Matt mentioned, our illness scripts develops over our clinical career. So does our schema. Like my schema for hypoglycemia shouldn't be the same today as it is in five years. Thank you for that. Yeah. I wanted to share one of the teaching points from the case. So with all of the Global Morning Report cases, they come with teaching points about kind of what the illness script is for that disease and then what the initial team was actually thinking. Um, so in this case, one of the teaching points was about um, that in patients with frequent hypoglycemia like this patient, they actually, the adrenergic response gets blunted. Um, so they lose what we call hypoglycemia awareness. So that's why this case didn't present necessarily as straightforward slam dunk hypoglycemia originally, um, because as you go through these episodes and episodes, you lose this adrenergic, this anxiety, the tremor, the sweating, and it becomes more so the neuroglycopenic sy symptoms that develop. So this kind of seizure encephalopathy, she had passed out a couple times. So the original team, I think they mentioned that um, they... Uh, that one of the clinical reasoning challenges for this case is that she is a middle-aged female healthcare worker with easy access to insulin. And so that created a degree of anchoring bias, not necessarily for us, I guess, for Reza, well done. But um, for the original team and definitely kind of seeing this patient in person, it can be really hard not to get anchored to that. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. What would be your kind of cognitive autopsy? What were the biases that you feel like you you felt? Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I was definitely biased too when I got the healthcare, the occupation of, of a healthcare worker. Um, I would say probably that was the, the biggest uh, bias I had. And, and I think it's important to consider, but I don't think it should lead the differential diagnosis um, in such a case. But I can easily see how some would prioritize that. Sure. If this were the boards, that would be the answer. No question. <laughs> All right, Hannah, should we move on to the second case so uh, so we can embarrass ourselves? Our next case is going to be solved by Stuart, Matt, and Paul. Uh, and it was written by Dr. John Wong, who's an internal medicine physician and clinical instructor at NYU School of Medicine and the clinical correlations host for the Core IM podcast. So you guys right, can go ahead and click the link. Listeners, this is case number two on the show notes. All right. Everyone got it open? Ooh. All right, this is the case Ready. of a 63-year-old male who presents to the clinic with jaundice. Painless jaundice <laughs> that came uh, that started one week ago. Oh, yep, pancreatic <laughs> cancer. Um, I, didn't, I put these cases together on purpose. Um, it's, and then starting about two weeks ago, he tells you he started having this pruritus that he describes as diffuse, intractable, debilitating. You talk to him a little bit more, you find out that over the past three months, he's had about 15 pounds of weight loss, fatigue, and anorexia that he can't really explain. So, Stuart, what do you think is going on with this 63-year-old man who presents to the clinic with painless jaundice? I think he's got acute intermittent porphyria. <laughs> <laughs> Writing that down. Okay. AIP. Fantastic, Stuart. Well, no, I think, you know, I think I, we've nailed it. I'm, Obviously, I don't want to say obviously, but when I hear painless jaundice in a relatively elderly gentleman um, with weight loss, I'm thinking that he's got some type of calorie malnutrition, something that's putting him into a uh, net uh, catabolic state. Generally, it, when it's this long, long lasting, I'm thinking more malignant um, 
And honestly, the first thing that I jumped to is pancreatic cancer. And that's not really, yes, I'm anchoring, but also the details of the case, the initial details of the, of the case really point towards some type of insidious process. Gentlemen? I'm wishing I had uh, I'm wishing I had spent 30 minutes on a diagnostic schema for jaundice uh, right about now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. So, right. So, so jaundice, painless jaundice. I agree with you, Stuart. Malignancy's got to be up there on the differential. We don't know if this patient has stone disease. We don't know anything about lifestyle factors that might be affecting the liver. Right. Um, but from well. a chronicity standpoint, yeah, so exactly right. So you have this pruritus two weeks ago that suggests some kind of biliary stasis. Yeah. So we're dealing with some sort of chronic hyperbilirubinemia sort of type picture, which right. it's, and again, with the age range that you're talking about, and given that the three-month history, I think you're stuck with, not stuck with, but I think malignancy would probably lay, be much higher on the list than almost anything else that might actually And, and it should, it, to, for, to be fair, it should include other processes as well, like primary biliary cirrhosis, uh, pr- primary sclerosis, uh, sclerosis and cholangitis. Th- those are part of my differential diagnosis as well. But right now, I'm, I'm most concerned about pancreatic head, head uh, tumor. Uh, Reza, did y- anything, anything else that we're missing here that you think we need to, that, that you would point out to the audience? Or should we just go on and you just kind of jump in when we're really like dropping the ball? I, I love your approach. I have nothing to add. Okay. Right. So let's find out a little bit more uh, about this young gentleman. So you talk to him a little bit more. You find out that he has a history of type 2 diabetes that he was diagnosed with one year ago that he says has been difficult to control on insulin. So that's weird, right? So he's got some insulin resistance. Does he? I mean, why is a 63-year-old gentleman developing diabetes? That's difficult. Right, yeah. That's odd. That is now suddenly out of control. So it sounds almost like there's a component of exocrine insufficiency here that happened sort of all of a sudden. So again, this sounds like something something knocked the pancreas out of whack. Um, Not remotely like you would expect. So this is not presenting like the lifelong history of sort of insulin resistance that sort of developed into type 2 diabetes. This seems like something that's happened a little bit more recently, right? Or am I I reading this wrong? But but what do they mean by difficult to control on insulin? Is it just... Is he like a brittle diabetic on insulin and he has waxing and waning hypohyperglycemia, which would really kind of go along more of an exocrine deficiency. But, um, you know, I, I, I think of more the kinds of patients that I see 63 years old and they've had diabetes for 20 years. And, and not exocrine insufficiency. I misspoke. That would be that'd be a different thing. So forgive me. But it just sounds like something has burned out re- recently, right? Yeah. Right. Well, let's get some labs. So. Um, you send back some. You send out some chemistries, and you get back that his unconjugated bilirubin is three point seven. His conjugated bilirubin is three point six, and his alkphos is three eighty six. Okay, so we we knew this patient had hyperbilirubinemia, and it looks like it's kind of evenly split between mm-hmm. conjugated and unconjugated. So, uh, not not necessarily. It's not caused by something like hemolysis, where you'd expect where the unconjugated would be more elevated. Um, in in pa- in process like cirrhosis, if I'm not mistaken, usually there's you know a, a relatively even mix of conjugated and unconjugated, where the the liver is either not doing its job or it's backing up from. Well, I guess that's not the right way to talk about it. Um, yeah, Paul or Stuart, help me out here. I'm I'm stuttering. No, 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 no. You you're doing great. Keep going. <laughs> I don't know how much more I don't know how much more I have to say. So we we're still I still think that this doesn't change the. It, it looks like it's more cholestatic with the uh, the alkalos elevation. Right. So so I, I don't know if it really changes what it 
would think about per yeah. se. So our our differential process our differential at this point was we were suspicious of the diabetes making us think that there's some sort of process affecting the pancreas. We right. uh, the jaundice and the hyperbilirubinemia make us think that perhaps there's something going on in the bile duct, whether it's malignancy or some sort of autoimmune processing causing like stricturing of the bile duct. Um, uh, malignancy of the pancreas or malignancy of the bile duct could be there. Okay. So we feel like the type 2 diabetes is the result of some kind of whatever's also causing the biliary obstruction. It would seem that they could be related. Um, I feel like this is not going to be what we think it is. (laughs) 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 All right. Let's see. So you send out more labs. Uh, You find out that his creatinine is 1.5 and it was normal one year ago. He has a normal UA. Well, obviously, this is important. <laughs> Why did you give us the hard case? <laughs> well, it might this not be fair. hard. It might just be the fact that uh, we are not. We may not be smart. No, <laughs> it's a hard case. Yeah, it's for sure. So let's case. talk it. Let's talk it through. Well, it's a little hard to know what to do with the creatinine of one point five in isolation, right? Like, if we just have a creatinine from a year ago and a creatinine yeah. of one point five now, and a patient with decreased intake, that may even just be a pre-renal type picture so it's it's hard to know exactly what to do with that with someone who presumably has decreased intake just from feeling sort of bad so i don't know yeah. if there's a trend towards that or if this is gradually worsening i think they're telling us this is a bland urinalysis with yeah. a new increase uh creatinine suggesting that this person has progressive renal failure they also have uh predi- we're presuming there's an issue with the the pancreas and uh the bile duct here so sort of uh, tying things, I guess, is there is there some unifying diagnosis to tie this sort of thing together? It's like some like hepatorenal syndrome, but then you wouldn't have a... Yeah, so do we, just, I mean, do we think this patient has cirrhosis based on what we know? Um, you know, certainly cirrhosis can give you jaundice, hyperbilirubinemia, and, and patients with cirrhosis, too. yeah, and patients with cirrhosis have an increased risk of, of type 2 diabetes for whatever reason. But I don't, I don't know that that would really uh, fit with with everything here because. Did, did we get a physical exam anywhere? I don't remember a physical exam. I feel I feel like a physical exam would have been very very helpful. Yeah, we don't have a social history, so that might be important. Otherwise, they might have given it to us already. I, but I I feel like an adequate I, I feel like an adequate history and physical exam would have really helped in this case. I'm wondering, so it's, maybe we are anchoring pretty darn hard. So now we have, as we're listing off the organs that are involved, we've got pancreas, we've got liver, we now have kidneys potentially involved. So mm-hmm. it's kind of hard. Is there some sort of infiltrative process that we're missing that affects all those things rather than trying to tie it all together into Yeah, like hemochromatosis. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. You know, I, I was going to make a joke about iron being the... Uh, on the differential diagnosis for every patient that I see, either overload or deficiency. I don't, yeah, I don't usually associate hemochromatosis with renal failure. Uh, not that I've either. seen a ton of but cases. You, you, can, you can have a, I believe, like an infiltrative um, process with iron overload mm-hmm. within the renal tubules. Right. At this point, I, I would back up and say, intern, let's go get a history and physical. <laughs> okay. So actually, I might I would probably do what I usually do, which is run this past someone who's smarter than me. So we have Reza here. <laughs> I just wonder, before we walk right off a cliff, 
can we sort of take sort of what your gestaltness is and how far astray we've gone so far? You you guys have done a, a very nice job of, of breaking and dissecting this case and breaking it down. I love the the fact that you created a few Venn diagrams, which included renal insufficiency. <laughs> really, Paul, you, you did this. Um, you, you guys talked about renal insufficiency, cholestatic liver injury, and new onset diabetes. And you were asking the question, is all the pathology within the biliary tract and the patient's dehydrated, leading to um, AKI? Or is there a unifying diagnosis that's involving multiple organs? Some of the schemas I might use in, in creating these separate Venn diagrams is with the cholestatic pattern of liver injury, thinking about intrahepatic causes and extrahepatic, extrahepatic like the ones you mentioned, and I agree with Stuart, this is pancreatic cancer until proven otherwise, but includes malignancy, uh, strictures, and stones. Intrahepatic includes viruses, drugs, um, granulomatous processes like sarcoidosis, which might involve the liver and the kidney. Um, and then with the renal insufficiency, I just think of what I was taught during medical school, pre-renal, renal, and post-renal. And once I get to renal, thinking of glomerulus, tubular or interstitial. So this is either all going to be some kind of biliary pathology leading to poor PO intake and dehydration or a multi-system process affecting the biliary tract and the kidney, as you had uh, eloquently mentioned, Paul. Yeah, the bland UA, I mean, if it was something, a lot of the times if it's autoimmune, you know, you'd expect protein, you'd expect some like right. red cell, dysmorphic red cells or cast or something in the urine. Um, usually a bland urinalysis is... Uh, yeah. So I, that's a terrific point. Okay. All right, Hannah. So what's, what's next? Sure. Do you guys want to update your differential before we move forward? I mean, I, <laughs> I still think we're at cancer or something else. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> something, I think it's something else. I don't think it's cancer because it's got too many organ systems involved and it's weird, you know, like I, so I, I, I think it's something else, and I would put that probably an autoimmune process. Um, I guess you could put if there's some weird medication he's taking or something on there that's like causing liver failure, kidney failure. That's a fun thought. Um, and I think like yeah, I think vasculitis is way lower. Um, all right, well let's just go. Let's go on. What's next? All right. So in some bizarre metaphor for the healthcare system today, Stuart, I don't have a physical exam for you, but I do have a CT scan. Oh, uh, that's great. <laughs> that's perfect. That makes so a lot I have of sense. a CT abdomen um, that shows a diffusely and homogeneously enlarged pancreas without discrete mass, as well as intrahepatic ductal dilation with beaded contour and okay. bilateral hydronephrosis that's mild. I feel like I'm missing a pathic mnemonic finding that I just don't know. So he's got stricturing of his, uh, he's got a urethral stricture and he's got stricturing in his bile duct. Is there something that causes that that we know of? Is that what, a, I, if he's got hydronephrosis, right? He's got, or, or maybe stricturing of the ureters and the, like whatever process is affecting the, the liver is also affecting the uh, general ure, urinary system. I think she just said yes. Does he have yes. some? Does he have Sorry. some? Uh, yeah, and I'm thinking out loud for you guys. Like, does he? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. are there infectious processes that could also cause something like this? Like, we don't know this guy's travel history. We kind of forgot to include that on. You know, like, did he have like a, a liver <laughs> liver fluke Man. or something? Yeah, I don't sure. think so. It's probably a liver fluke. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a thing? 
Uh, these, uh, but you're right. So it's bilateral hydronephrosis. So it's not a, a single ureteral involvement. So that suggests maybe even like a bladder process or like you said, even your urethral process that would lead to that. So there's, so we know we've got sort of another, just a, another general area kind of involved here that's sort of muddying the waters a little bit. And then the diffuse, diffusely, um, the homogenous pancreas that's enlarged. Is his, that's is his spleen something. also enlarged? Look at the image. Uh, I don't that's think we got that on pretty. The, I'm looking at the picture. Yeah. No, no, the, I know. I just don't think it, it told us in the... Yeah, no, it just looks large. Right. Um, right. This is a... So... Uh, Interesting. <laughs> All right. Uh, sh- should we throw this to Reza? This is... So, so guys, I actually... So I, I selected the two cases for you guys. So I know the diagnosis. <laughs> So I'm, I can Force. tell you with 100% confidence that I'll get the diagnosis. Okay, good, good. I thought you were blinded to all them, Reza. I thought, Thanks, no, I was, Reza. I, was I think you cheated. No, I'm blinded to the two that you guys are presenting uh, to me. Okay, I, we're uh, blinded to all the cases. But in the future, I should be blinded to, to the other cases. The other thing to consider, though, is like, I, I love how you guys talked about the bilateral hydronephrosis. We talked about the ureters, the urethra, um, in the bladder outlet, uh, but what could cause bilateral ureteral obstruction? And maybe something in the retroperitoneum. Mm-hmm. It, it's really interesting because we're often taught, like when someone asks you, what do you think the diagnosis is? And I always tell my my residents, go back to the big three, infection, autoimmune, and malignancy. Mm-hmm. But um, Gupreet has a terrific article which adds an additional category, which is infiltrative. Yeah. And thinking like, what are the infiltrative diagnoses that, that might lead to retroperitoneal you know, involvement, biliary involvement, renal involvement? So the uh, I'll name the, the most common ones I can think of, and Stuart and Paul jump in. So we, got, we have sarcoidosis, we have mm-hmm. hemochromatosis, we have Wilson's. Um, there's, uh, what else can cause infiltrative disease? Thinking of uh, what's that? The anti the the linear staining and then the globular staining. Oh, that's goodness. not that's not ringing a bell to me. I know, I know, it's not. Um, God, this is I, this is like pulling on some uh, knowledge that I yeah, don't I off files that I don't often access. Uh, like I'm, like that like the, the anti like anti basement membrane disease or is this amyloid? Amyloid. Okay, yeah, there you go, Paul. So Matt, what you guys are doing here are dissecting the case and you have really sort of identified the main category to be concerned about. And I I just, this is like the beauty of excellent clinical reasoning is that although you might not be aware of a rare diagnosis, your thinking has led you down the right path to at least the correct category of diseases. And honestly, at this point, if you enter something into Google Chrome, You'll probably get the right answer. In fact, why don't we just so much to try all that? <laughs> I was thinking I was thinking good good pastures disease, not burger's disease. I'm sorry. Oh, good pastures. Yeah. Yeah. That that's that's what I was thinking. Right. All right. I'm pulling up Google Chrome. What are the three things you guys want me to type in? Infiltrative. Uh, um pancreas. Retroperitoneal. And liver. We're gonna get three? Oh, three, yeah. Okay. Okay, infiltrative pancreas retroperitoneal. We've got retroperitoneal fibrosis. Come on, Google. Mama needs a new pair of shoes. 
<laughs> Let's see. Orman's disease. Oh, right. What is that? I do not oh. know what that is. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> Pulling up the PubMed. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, retroperitoneal fibrosis is an uncommon process um, that usually involves the aorta, the IBC. Oh, yeah. It's. I, yeah, I, I just saw a, a case on this one. It was IgG4 mediated retroperitoneal fibrosis, but there's there's actually several different cases. It's not just IgG4. Um, gosh, what, what's the what's the other? <laughs> there's but there's a, there's another cause. All right, Stuart, you might have you might have accidentally landed on the diagnosis here. Okay. <laughs> So this team had to literally go in and get a pancreatic biopsy. It was obviously a hard case. Um, and it shows lymphoplasmacytic infiltration with no malignant cells seen. So with all of that in mind, do you guys have a final differential diagnosis and where you'd put your money? I want to say IgG4 mediated retroperitoneal fibrosis. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with Stuart there. Uh, yeah, I would not have, even with the pathology, you know, that would have been another Google Chrome search for me. But I think, uh, yeah, I think the point, Rez's point is proven. The, uh, at least, <laughs> you know, we were in the general ballpark-ish. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and, and the only reason I could even pull it up is because I, I, I saw it recently. It had bilateral uh, hydronephrosis. Um, and then when uh, Paul was talking about retroperitoneal fibrosis, it just kind of clicked. Well, I think we need to do a post-mortem here. Oh, oh good grief. So Reza is far too kind. Can you, Sir, I have bad news for you. You have some sort of infiltrative process. Don't know what to tell you. I'm going to go Google. Best of luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, Hannah, what do you want to do first? Should we give some teaching points? Should we reveal the diagnosis and give some teaching points, and then we'll get to the postmortem? You're in Let's charge. Let's do it. I'll tell you how the patient did. Um, so EUS confirmed the CT appearance, which is what you guys uh, saw. Um, and serum IgG4 levels were drawn that were four times the upper limit of normal. It was diagnosed as autoimmune pancreatitis related to IgG4 disease. And the patient was started on glucocorticoids with complete resolution in a month. Um, so some of the teaching points for this were like, first of all, what is IgG4 retroperitoneal infiltration? Uh, <laughs> so it turns out that IgG4 disease, it's actually like this broad category of things that were thought to be totally separate and now are sort of being unified under this IgG4 umbrella. But some of the most common places for it are the pancreas, the biliary tree, and the retroperitoneum. So you can get this hydronephrosis, aortitis. Um, and the unique kind of clinical pearl that they brought out of this that's is more broadly applicable is that autoimmune cholangitis often has this debilitating pruritus that the patient really was first complaining of, um, despite just a little bit of elevation in the bilirubin, um, whereas metastatic obstruction, uh, sorry, malignant obstruction uh, actually less often tends to have this debilitating pruritus symptom. So it's just a little clinical clue that can be the one thing that led us away from malignant disease in the very beginning. It's funny because I have the opposite of whatever recall bias is because I've actually seen this one time and it actually manifested initially as periorbital inflammation, which is, I think, not a common presentation of it. I don't know that I was aware this existed. If I've read about it, I was like, oh, I'll never need to know that. Bye. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to recall what they actually use to treat the uh, IgG4 uh, retroperitoneal fibrosis in this clinical case series, because they actually identified eight patients in a period of 12 months in the, the, the healthcare system that I work in, and they found a, a novel treatment. I'm trying to remember what, what it was. I'll have to reach out to the individual who talked about this 
and see if I can remember what it is, um, or at least uh, get the information sent to Matt because it was it was interesting. Okay. Cool. Right. And I actually have a cool review paper on the topic um, since I had no idea what this was uh, and had to look it up. Um, so I have a review paper on it that I can also put in the show notes. Great. If you could also send it my way, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Reza, do you want to kind of walk us through the cognitive autopsy? Yeah, I, I think here I just want to highlight how well they tackled this problem because initially they led with pancreatic adenocarcinoma, which was the right reaction, in my opinion. Um, but later, there was other features of the case, including the renal insufficiency um, and the concern for retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy that prompted other diagnoses. And I remember Matt saying, this feels like something autoimmune. And that was exactly right. So even if you don't know the diagnosis, I think the journey is, is what's most important and will likely lead you to the correct diagnosis. We actually had a, a case at Cashlack a few years ago where the patient had a pancreatic head mass and everyone thought that was pancreatic adenocarcinoma despite uh, negative biopsies for cancer. This patient, believe it or not, underwent a Whipple surgery oh, to be oh ultimately God. diagnosed with IgG4-related disease wow. while steroids could have likely cured the patient. So... I think just knowing when to pause and sort of have that gestalt that something doesn't fit right. And certainly you guys pause before even getting the biopsy results, but after the biopsy results, it would have led to a Google search as to what can be causing this. Yeah. All right. Good. That was a good case. Uh, very, very interesting case. So Praise be to the Lords of Google. <laughs> <laughs> Reza, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you give us and our listeners a couple main take-home points for this episode? Yes, uh, the power of clinical reasoning, which was on display by the curbsider team. Knowing the, the key terms in clinical reasoning, like the problem representation, illness script, the schema, and the cognitive autopsy might, might be helpful. And remember, when you're creating these schemas, devote an hour and come up with the best schema that you possibly can, and then practice it and refine it until it's crisp and until you can teach it in less than a minute or two. Your students will love you for that. I love it. I think that's a great, I, I've been inspired now to, to do this. I, I think I, I have a couple things that I could probably just hone a little bit that, uh, you know, but I got I got to work on my like uh, autoimmune fibrosing conditions. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. Don't waste any space. That's for mine, Matt. <laughs> okay. All right, Reza. Anything you'd like to plug before we let you go? Yes, I, I want to plug a research article that just came out, and it was from Cashlack and my colleague Vivek Murthy, Bridget O'Brien, and Gurpreet Dollywall. And the title is An Inquiry into the Early Career of Master Clinicians. And they do a qualitative research study asking the question, what did these master clinicians do early in their career? I'm not going to give any spoilers here. You'll have to just read the article. I can say that uh, I am on a, well, I probably can't. I, I was sent this article by somebody who I respect very much. So I read it and it was fantastic. And uh, I would highly recommend it as well. Thank you. Ben. Awesome. Reza, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. We'll see you soon, hopefully. Whoop will you later. Stuart, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. I blame you for all these puns. Uh.
<laughs> yeah. I can't believe you got that on the first clue. Yeah. Reza. I was Re- lucky. Amazing. Reza, this was great. I like the fact that I think all of us are several years older than you. Uh, not Hannah, of course, but, uh, and uh, you're, yeah, very, I love, I love that this is the, you know, the, you, you have developed this skill that I have only just, I, I don't think I had ever really thought about or learned about diagnostic reasoning until we started hanging out with Gurpreet, uh and maybe a little bit before that, but like, yeah, I'm so glad that I've stumbled upon this and now it's being talked. Now it's like, really, I'm hearing about it all the time. And uh, I I would love, I can't wait to get better at this so I can teach it better and uh, do more of these cases. This is really fun. And really, this is not a reflection of anyone's IQ. This is deliberate practice yeah. and mm-hmm. training smart. And so everyone can achieve mastery of diagnostics. And I learned that from Group This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com or reach out on Facebook, Instagram and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Special thanks to Dr. Stephanie Sherman, Davin Sargasyan, Anand Jagannath, John Wong and Robbie Geha uh, for contributing cases and to uh, Hannah Abrams for producing, <laughs> as well as to our immediate social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Gar- Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. I'm Hannah R. Abrams. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, and goodbye. Goodbye. Does he have to be smart and nice? Because I, that just fills me with loathing. I'm going to, where is he? I'm going to find him in toilet paper's house. <laughs> he's in, uh, yeah, he's not just a short drive, Paul. He's down in Baltimore, so. Oh, fantastic. All right. <laughs>